I'm Nevada criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. My office gets lots of calls by people who are worried that they may have outstanding warrants in Las Vegas. You can usually find out by doing a simple online search. Here are three things to know. One, to check online for warrants issued by the Las Vegas Justice Court, go to the Court Records Inquiry website provided below in the video description and follow the prompts. Cases with active warrants will appear with a red and white W to the left of the case number. Two, to check online for warrants issued by the Las Vegas Municipal Court, go to the Marshall Warrant Search website provided below in the video description and enter the person's name and social security number. Three, you can also check warrant status by phone. For information on warrants issued by the Las Vegas Justice Court, call 702-671-3201. For information on warrants issued by the Las Vegas Municipal Court, call 702-229-6201. Although these websites will indicate whether you have a warrant issued by a judge in a Las Vegas Justice Court or Municipal Court, if there is an arrest warrant from a local police department, unfortunately, you may not be able to determine whether such a warrant exists without the help of an attorney. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys of the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. Prostitution is legal in licensed brothels throughout the state of Nevada, everywhere except the places you want to be, Reno and Las Vegas. The law specifically states in Nevada that in counties where the population is above 400,000, that would specifically be Reno in northern Nevada and Las Vegas in southern Nevada, that prostitution is absolutely illegal. And based upon that false assumption, many people who are otherwise try to be law-abiding citizens find themselves in trouble. Prostitution does not necessarily entail engaging in sex in exchange for money or something of value. Uh, prostitution can simply be offering to engage in sex acts. And so a lot of people feel that because there was no sexual conduct, there's no case. Unfortunately, the law does not require sexual conduct to occur. Prostitution is a misdemeanor. If you're convicted, you, you likely would face probation, perhaps some jail time, and there's a maximum of up to six months of jail time. As well, a lot of times uh, it'll be required that you take an AIDS test and, and that you stay away from the location where it occurred. But perhaps the, the worst ramification of a prostitution or solicitation conviction is having it on your record because it's embarrassing, it's a red flag for employers, and you don't want to be in a situation where you're in a job interview and, and you want to be talking about your, your experience and your qualifications, but instead you find yourself explaining why you've been convicted of solicitation. 
So if you're charged with this offense, you want to do everything that you can now to fight it and keep it off your record. It's not uncommon on a solicitation case, especially if our client has no prior record, to negotiate a result whereby our client might agree to take a class or post and forfeit some money in exchange for a dismissal or a reduction to a charge like a trespassing charge or a disorderly conduct charge. The class that clients sometimes are required to take as part of a plea negotiation is commonly known as a John School class, which is a one-day class encompassing between four to eight hours where they're required to attend a session. Sometimes it can be done online. Sometimes the court requires it to actually be done in person. But that often is a class that allows someone to avoid having the soliciting prostitution charge on their record once that class is completed. Prostitution and solicitation is one of those crimes where it can be surprisingly difficult for the prosecutor to prove the case. And first of all, we find a lot of times that there's ambiguity in the language that's used. So we'll get a police report and in a situation where there was an undercover sting and the undercover was posing as a prostitute. And it'll say you know, that our client offered the, the undercover $50 for, for oral sex. And when we actually get the tape and the transcript and we look at it, it's not nearly that clear. Our client may have said, you know, how much do you charge? And what would I get for that? And where would we do it? And are you a police officer? But there's never a point where our client explicitly says, okay, I'll do it. I'll pay you $50 for a blowjob. And, and, and without that sort of explicit language, it's difficult for the prosecutor to prove their case. Also, we find that there's a lot of situations where our client really wasn't serious. So, uh, you know, a lot of guys like to go up to people who they think are hookers and, and kind of jive with them and, and pretend like they're bargaining and ask them what they do and pretend like they're a potential customer. But the reality is that they have no intention of going through with it. They have no intention of really paying the person money for, for sex. And, and if that was not the intent of our client to, to really go through with it, then it's not the crime of prostitution. It's not uncommon in a solicitation case that we would have a defendant that's never been in trouble before. It's often someone who may have a partner. Uh, there may be a lot of embarrassment. It may be that you don't want your partner to know that you got in trouble in Las Vegas, specifically that it involved something such as solicitation. Um, so we're very discreet with our clients who come to us with these types of charges. We really do our best to try to fashion a resolution so that the charge will not show up on your record. So there's no explaining to do. And we do understand how this particular charge can. One very important provision in the Nevada revised statutes is that people who have been convicted of a crime are allowed to apply for a record seal. And the importance of a record seal is, you know, so many people 
um, have a past, uh, have a conviction that impairs their ability, mostly when it comes to looking for a job. So the ability to apply for and obtain a record seal is very important because it allows you finally to bury the hatchet on your past and move forward without the stigma that goes with a criminal conviction. In Nevada, almost all convictions are eligible for a record sealing, except for sexual assaults and crimes against children. Mike, here in Nevada, we use the term statutory sexual seduction. Does that mean the same thing as statutory rape? Yes, Nevada's use of statutory sexual seduction is the same as what's commonly known as statutory rape in other parts of the country. And here in Nevada, here in Las Vegas, so what is the legal definition of statutory rape or, or statutory sexual seduction? In essence, the age of majority in Nevada is 16 years old. So statutory sexual seduction would be having sex with somebody who is under the age of 16. And really it would amount to having sex with someone who's 14 or 15. Because if you have sex with someone under 14, then that would be considered child sexual assault. Now, when you say have sex with, what is, is that oral sex? Is that vaginal sex? What is the technical definition? The technical definition involves any penetration. It doesn't have to be traditional sexual intercourse. It can be any kind of penetration um, sexually, and it's very uh, broadly defined. It can be, uh, it can be fingers, it can be lips, tongue, it, it doesn't have to involve necessarily two sexual organs. So, so when you say any penetration, I mean, that obviously that includes vaginal penetration. That's correct. It includes anal penetration. Yes. Now, now what about oral sex? Is, is that included here? Oral sex would also be classified as having sex for purposes of the statute on sta- statutory sexual seduction. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, you said that the age of consent here in Nevada is 16, right? Yes. So let's say I'm, I have a girlfriend who's 15 years old, okay? And uh, she and I are having a, a sexual relationship. But it's entirely consensual. It's loving. Uh, it's willing. There, there's no force used. There's no coercion used. Uh, but I get accused of statutory rape. I mean, isn't uh, the, her consent or her willingness a defense to, to a crime like that? It's not. It, ultimately, the law reflects the social value in the state of Nevada that says under any circumstances, it's just not appropriate for someone who's under 16 years old to be engaging in sexual acts. What if I believe that she is of the age of majority? I mean, let's say I meet a young lady and she tells me she's 17 years of age and and actually she looks very mature. She looks like she may be 19 or 20. uh, And I just have no reason to believe otherwise. And I honestly and reasonably believe that this young lady is 17 and therefore that the sex with her is legal 
uh, but in fact she's 15. And could I get arrested? Could I get charged? What's the circumstances there? Absolutely, you could be arrested and you could be charged. Ultimately, prosecutorial discretion plays a role. If your defense attorney can show the prosecutor that you had been misled, if there was a fake ID, it may be that your attorney could compel or convince the prosecutor to utilize their discretion to either dismiss the charge or reduce or reduce the charges. But as a matter of law, it's, it doesn't matter. It's a strict liability crime. So, uh, so basically, if she's underage, then I, I'm liable. That's correct. Now, uh, let's say the prosecutor does not reduce the charge and I go to trial, I'm convicted of statutory sexual seduction. What are the penalties here in Nevada? What would I be facing? Okay, in Nevada for statutory sexual seduction, it is a felony. You could go to prison. Um, most likely, if it's a first offense, you would likely get a probationary sentence, which would mean either hopefully no jail time or some local jail time in the Clark County Detention Center. But ultimately, you could go to prison depending on the facts and circumstances. If you're convicted of uh, statutory sexual seduction here in Nevada, do you have to register as a sex offender? Courts have some discretion with regard to ordering registration for statutory sexual seduction. Most often, they will order registration. It's not required, but it's certainly better if your counsel can negotiate a resolution to something, for example, coercion, non-sexually motivated, which specifically does not carry the sex offender registration requirement. So the answer is yes, but not always. And have you had uh, success in uh, representing clients accused of uh, statutory rape, statutory sexual seduction here in Nevada? We have had success in that regard. Uh, we have been able in some cases to get the cases dismissed. Sometimes a complaint will be made, let's say by, by a family member or other third party, but the, 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 the victim, so to speak, who might be a willing participant is not. So people are always going to need two things, a place to stay and something to drive. It's guaranteed. When people worry about the pandemic, y'all still getting Instacart, Amazon Prime now, mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft drivers still cranking up. You know why? Because guys like me give them the cars. <laughs> I love it. What's going on, family? David Chance. I want to give you a special invitation to The Morning Meetup, themorningmeetup.com. It is the only organization that gathers every single morning, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and we help you learn entrepreneurship, grow as an entrepreneur, become an entrepreneur, or you just get to be in an environment, a network of all entrepreneurs. Literally hundreds of entrepreneurs gather on a Zoom call every single morning, Monday through Friday, okay? So I want to give you a special invitation to help grow your business and your brand all this year, okay? Every single day. You eat every day for the for your health. You brush your teeth every every day for your hygiene. I need you to learn and grow every single day um, for your mindset, okay? So make sure you go to themorningmeetup.com. It is only $1 um, trial. You don't need a promo code. Just go 
$1, themorningmeetup.com. Check it out. If you like us, stay. If not, after that, it's $79 a month, but I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy yourself, okay? So go to themorningmeetup.com. I love y'all. See you in the morning. The Social Food Podcast. Streaming now on all platforms. I'm ready. Let's, let's get this party All started. Right. Let's go. Listen, welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast, man, where we find people who have documented success. You, you know, feel they can me? go out and teach it, man. I have. You, you don't know it, but I've been waiting all week for this interview, bro. Oh, man. Me and you both. Bro. I'm not going to lie to you. Sweaty hands and all. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Let's get to it, baby. So we got, uh, I got in the car, uh, car rental games. Shouts out to Maddie J. For sure. And um, we were at, for one, I, I wasn't 100% sure. I didn't know you did, like, the car rental game. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. But then we started talking at the bowling alley, and I am wowed, bruh. Like, yo, you wow. I'm sitting there with my jaw dropped. Like, I appreciate what? that. What? I appreciate that. Things that I've never even thought of. So um, I'm really excited about this, man. Man, me too. I've been waiting for this. Matter of fact, before the wedding thing, I was like, I was so hyped up for last week. I was like, I'm about to go in there with my boy Dave and go crazy. <laughs> I was like, it's about to go digital. But it's dope, man. I'm I'm glad that you have all of this space. I'm just looking around. I told you I feel like I'm in like Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I'm like, my boy is doing their major and they can't see how cool your whole space look, but this is crazy. <laughs> Bro, wow, keep doing your thing, my G. Man, I appreciate this you, is, man. This is doper than anything I ever done. I'm just like, I'm hype. I'm hype. I'm a regular bull. I'm a regular dude. I'm from Philly. I'm a regular bull. Like, I'm out here Yo. like, you know what I'm saying? So, Yo, man, so I wasn't what? supposed to be here. You know what I'm man, saying? We, we, we got it. First off, just go on and introduce yourself, man, because right. we dog um, right here. So, uh, clearly, I'm Pushman Mitch. Uh, I, I own a, the biggest rental car agency in Atlanta. If not the biggest, the second biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I leverage social currency. I teach financial literacy. I teach... I, I, take, I take millionaires and I make them feel like they're regular because I, te- I could teach a regular person how to become a millionaire if they let me. Mm. Does that make sense? So my goal now is just other than to retire my mom this year, mm-hmm. I want to make a million millionaires. So if I touch that guy who touches that guy who touches that guy and, this, and they got their family getting money, sure. that's what I'm about. So like I was telling you before we started on live, I got to give my boy Clay to be a millionaire. It's guaranteed. I promise you. Guaranteed. What's the formula? The formula formula? is understanding that if you can sell a product for $1,000 to 1,000 people, you can make a million dollars. So if you can do that times 10, then you can make 10 million. You know what I'm saying? And people, when you break it down to the smallest point, it's easy. It's not even hard. Not easy, but it's simple. It's simple. You get what I'm saying? It's going to take work. Yeah, it's going to take work because... a lot of people want instant gratification. So that's the social media thing, right? Yeah. They see me at Lambo, so they're like, oh, I want to get the course so I can get a Lambo. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, that's Z, though. That's not A. Right, right. Start from A, go to V, C, D, make the bumps and bruises so you know what you're doing when you get to Z. Mm. Why would you want to just start off with a Lambo? You're going to start off with a Lambo, crash it, and now you're done. Right. You get what I'm saying? Get you some... Toyota Prius, just crashed them up, learn the formula, insurance, how to pay for that, and now you got a Lambo, no-brainer. Oh, 
Easy. Okay, okay. Slow down. Slow down. Nah, for real. Hey, look. Hey, I can't go in public like civilians, for real. This is king of car rentals right here. And how many cars do you have? Uh, 43 for myself, but I have a network of 150. So, like I told you, if you take my course, you understand that I don't only have hold to on, own it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You have 43 cars. 43. And a network of how many? Of 150 and still building. So, explain the network of 150. So, what I do is the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, there, the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, uh, the FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, they did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, so we certainly commend you uh, to, to watching that video. We, we think it's, it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, it will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, the first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. <laughs> and then it will be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, on each of those dates it will be shown at both uh, noon and then again at 1 o'clock. Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment, but before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct has to be done on an individualized determination. Uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and the, the for which the guidelines are being applied, you have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now, I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the role of a conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely. Very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. 
It's going to focus on multiple count application and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're flying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is Hey, well, if I got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I? I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place to go out to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules: one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice through conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guideline sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase, and our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional, what we call, harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a count of conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, as the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times through the multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... Okay, so your total credit, 1,000, 1,500, 1,800. What if you put a $25,000 credit trade line on your credit report, an authorized user trade line, 25,000? The debt stays the same, and all you're doing is now adding in 25,000 more. So now instead of three accounts, you have four accounts, Right? So now you would have a 300, a 500, a 1,000, and a $25,000 authorized user account. So the debt doesn't change. Right? So I don't know where your debt would be on these. Right? I don't know what your utilization is. But for example, if you put $25,000 credit limit, 
Now you have to add the 25,000 to 1,000 or 26,000, 26,500, 26,800. And then 26,800 combined total credit limit divided by how much utilization you have. And I guarantee you, if you did that, and that was the scenario that we were looking at, your score would climb through the roof because you're adding in $25,000 of new credit onto your credit report. This is called an authorized user. And what that means is you're piggybacking off of somebody with excellent credit. Somebody with more than likely that has over a 780 credit score who's willing to share their credit with you, whether it's a family member, a friend, or whether that is using our VIP vendor who has been vetted and screened and checked out to make sure that their, their utilization is low. They'd never miss any late payment because it's a copy paste. They're willing to share their credit and say, you know what? I'm willing to add you onto my credit card. And what's going to happen is that $25,000 credit limit will then report to your credit report as if it was you. And what happens is your score just freaking just goes nutso. And literally just, it starts raising like crazy because you're lowering utilization and you're adding on another positive account. Okay. Tip number four. And this again is about a trade line. Understand this age trumps credit limit. So in a case where you have low utilization, you're like, you know what? I got low utilization, so I don't need a really high credit limit. I want to always tell you this. The age of the account will trump the credit limit. Give you an example. I would rather have a $3,000, $4,000 credit limit with 15 years rather than a $20,000 credit limit with a year old. I would take the 3,000 with 15 years of history, hands down over a $50,000 credit limit with less than a year. Why? And this is the biggest misconception. People, oh, I want a 50K credit card. Age trumps credit limit. Because when lenders are looking at your credit, especially when we're talking about FICO, you better have aged accounts on there. Okay. So now age, I don't recommend anything under two years because they can look back two years. Okay. And if they look back two years and they see something that just got put on, that's a six month old, it's not going to work. Okay. So any trade lines have to be over two years. All right. But think about it like this as a lender. They want to make sure that you've been making payments. How good does this look like if you had a $5,000 credit limit with 15 years of perfect payment history? So maybe you went through a bankruptcy and you're like, you know what? I, I need to start over. I got a clean slate, but you know, I don't know what to do. Well, the way that I went through it, the old school way was I got a secured credit card. Then I went to the next card and then I got my next card and my next, right? That's the old school way. Today, people know smart, they're smarter than that, right? And that's why I want to bring it to you to give you the insight to save you years of time. You could either literally do it like I did back in 2013, which is get a secured credit card, 
then hopefully get your Capital One, right? Everybody knows, go to Capital One Platinum, go there, and then you go to your Discover IT card after that post and make three to four payments there. Then you can start building it up, and it takes a while. Or you can add an age trade line or two to your credit report because maybe you just went through credit repair and you got a clean slate. Maybe you went through a bankruptcy and you've got, you're like, I don't want to do the whole secured card route. I just want to get started right away. Literally, this is a process that could take literally under like 60 days. You could put a couple trade lines on in under 60 days, you're starting to get big boy credit cards. Instead of having to wait and do the secured card $200 credit limit and then the capital one that's going to give you maybe three to 400 bucks and then maybe the Discover IT card that might give you 800 to 1,000, then that process takes about you know eight to nine months Maybe, maybe a little longer, depending on how good you are, or you can put a few trade lines on and start the process. The defense to willful destruction of evidence might be that you lack the intent to get rid of evidence. For example, if, uh, if your partner came home and unbeknownst to you, they had uh, clothing that was used during the commission of a robbery or a firearm that they placed in the garbage, and you simply threw the garbage out, but you didn't know that there was something of evidentiary value in the garbage, you would not be guilty of willfully destroying evidence. Additionally, you cannot be successfully prosecuted for willful destruction of evidence if the item which was destroyed had no evidentiary value in court. Oftentimes in domestic violence cases, the law enforcement agency has a statement from the accuser, but no one's heard the defendant's side of the story. So it's really important that we sit down with an accused in a domestic violence situation, get their side of the story. We can then present that side of the story to the district attorney's office oftentimes resulting in either a dismissal or a reduction in the charges. Oh my God, you're listening to stupid people who are broke and they ran their FICO score up. They got no money, but they got a big score, which says they've been playing kissy face with the bank a lot. That's all that score says. Now, you, can, you cannot find any data to support anything except what I've said is the truth. Go study FICO. Look at the history of the organization. Look at the algorithm and the way it's built. Well, you can't get a house without a FICO score, says a moron. Of course you can get a house without a FICO score. There's two possible ways. One is you save up and pay cash for it which people do, believe it or not. And two is you get a mortgage company who actually knows how to write a mortgage without a FICO score. Not all of them do. A lot of them are so stupid, they only know how to look at a number. Ooh, ooh. Monkey can make this loan. Make the, got the number. Ooh, ooh. We don't even know if he's got a job, but we'll give him a dadgum loan. But if you, know, if you get a mortgage company that knows how to do manual underwriting... 
you can get the same mortgage that high FICO score boy can get. The exact same mortgage if you want to go get a mortgage. So quit believing the lies that are out there and stumbling around in your stupidity and wondering why you're broke. It's ridiculous. It's so aggravating. It's gone on for so long, too. This is the Dave Ramsey Show. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show. NRS section 453.321 includes sale of narcotics here in the state of Nevada, but sale doesn't just include exchanging drugs for money. It could also include bartering drugs, trading them for something, giving them away. The statute also includes manufacturing drugs. So it's not just typically what we think of as direct sale in exchange for money. And ask them if they will allow you to be an authorized user on those accounts. They do not have to even give you the credit card. So there's very little risk to them. The next thing that I did to increase my credit score that you can do is you need to get some of that bad credit off of your credit report. You gotta start cleaning up your credit report. So one of the things that I learned is that you could get errors or omissions or things like that on your credit report off of it. Because what I learned was that the burden of proof was on the person that reported it. So in other words, if I had a charge off with AT&T for a cell phone that I didn't pay, the burden of proof was be on AT&T to prove that it was me and to prove that I still owed the debt. And if they did not verify it, it would have to be removed off of my credit report. Well, you can do the same thing. You, once you have the copy of your credit report, as I've already told you to do, when you have all of the accounts, it's very simple to just go through them and find any inaccuracies, any errors, anything that you could dispute to get that off of your credit report. You need to find any inaccuracies, any errors, or any misrepresentations. Or if it's something that you see on your credit report that you just don't recognize or you don't recall, you can also get that removed. So you can start getting bad credit deleted off of your credit report by starting to file some of those disputes and by locking up your credit. The next thing you can also get off of your credit is inquiries. Many times when we apply for things, people will pull our credit and they will pull it many, many times with different lenders. You may go to apply for a car, for example, and they may shop your loan through all of these different companies and each of those companies is giving you hard inquiries. You literally can take it into your own hands and start to get those hard inquiries removed from your credit report. I've literally made a video about this and I'm going to put a link in there on how to remove those hard increase because it is amazing and it is something that you need to do and this is how you will get even more points. 
what happens with those hard inquiries is it's probably costing you about five points for each one where you got declined from. And if you can get those inquiries removed, again, they'll remove from themselves after 25 months, okay, because it has to stay up there for two years. After 25 months, they'll automatically fall off your credit report. But if you want to get those removed sooner, you can go ahead by doing that and following the process that I outlined for you. And again, I made a whole video for you. So you want to start cleaning up that credit, removing um, any bad credit and errors, omissions, misrepresentations, things you don't represent, things that you don't recall. And then last but not least, disputing and removing all of those hard inquiries and getting that credit report cleaned up. Okay, and last but not least, like I said, I was going to give you a big secret on how you would never have to worry about personal credit again and do all of what Noel did. So like I said, I have great personal credit right now, but I had terrible personal credit a couple of years ago. I was in a situation where I didn't know anything about personal credit, but more importantly, I didn't know about business credit. One of the things that has changed my personal credit situation forever is the fact that now I have a strong business credit profile for all of my businesses. I'm able to access hundreds of thousands, actually millions for some of my business in business funding using my business credit profile. This doesn't go on my personal credit report. As I use those business credit cards, my score is not going all up and down like it was when I was using my personal credit cards. And now I'm in a situation where I really don't even have to touch my personal credit. My business credit handles everything that I need. Additionally, when it comes to business credit, the limits are so much more higher. With personal credit, oftentimes, if you get a Capital One car, for example, they may only give you $1,000. But with a Capital One business credit card, they'll start you off with $5,000 where they would have probably just started you off with a thousand with the personal one. So again, the limits, the amounts, everything are so much higher. It's a different world and you really want to step into the world of business credit. First, follow the steps that I said and fix that personal credit. Well, please take a look and learn about business credit. I've made a ton of videos teaching you all about this absolutely free. Let's get on that bandwagon. So there you have it. You now know how to increase your credit score by 200 points. I've given you all of the steps, all of the different things that I've done and told you exactly how to do it. Make sure you click that like button. Make sure you subscribe to my channel. Please click that little notification bell so you do not miss any of this content that I am bringing to you every single weekday, absolutely free. I want to make sure that you have all of the tools, all of the resources, and all of the knowledge that you need to be successful. This is Noel to your success.